Would you take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 5 today? We're going to be looking at verses uh, 16 through the end of the chapter this morning. I'd like to read part of it for us as we begin. John chapter 5, verses 16 and following. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. And Jesus said to them, My Father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. And I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to judge, because He is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Amen. When we began our study in John, we saw that John wrote this gospel for a specific purpose. He wrote this book so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He tells us that at the end of his gospel in John 20, verses 30 and 31. When Jesus, it says, did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John was selective. There was so much material, in a sense, he could have used that he had to decide which ones were the most appropriate to convey his message that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And as we read through this gospel, story by story, example by example, miracle by miracle, he builds his case. But one of the things we haven't defined for you yet is what does John mean when he calls Jesus the Son of God? And that's important for us to consider because sometimes people misunderstand titles like that. They think of a son in terms of how we think of earthly relationships between a father and a son. 
And they have misunderstandings about that. For example, does the title Son of God mean that Jesus is less than God? Not at all. No, He is equal with the Father and He possesses all of the same attributes. In John 10.30, we're going to see that uh, Jesus says that I and the Father are one. We are one in essence, in nature. Does the title Son of God mean that Jesus is created by God? No, it doesn't mean that either. The Son of God was present at creation. He is eternal, without beginning or end. So why does the Scripture call Him the firstborn over all of creation? You read that in Colossians 1.15. Well, the answer is not that He was created. The answer is that it refers to His rank or His position, His status. He has all the rights of a firstborn son. You see, the Scripture in many places uses words as a, a metaphor or an analogy, but all human analogies will break down when applied to God. And you'll hear words that are used as a metaphor of God. For example, you've heard about uh, the right hand of the Father Almighty. But God is spirit. He doesn't have a physical body like us. It's a metaphor that explains that right hand position is the place of honor and power and authority. When it talks about Jesus as the Son, it helps us to get an idea of the relationship that is there between the Father and the Son, but it doesn't mean that He is somehow less than God. He is God. And that's the third question. Does it mean that He is just a man? Certainly not. No, He became a man at the Incarnation. John tells us that the Word became flesh. That's the way that He describes it. This One who was the Word, who was with God, and who is God in the beginning, took upon Himself our humanity. But He is fully God, and He is fully man. He has all the same attributes of God the Father, and He bears our own likeness as a man. It's a mystery. It is one of the wonders that took place at the Incarnation that we celebrate at this time of the year. How do we know these things, though? Who says this? Is this just John coming up with this? What's remarkable about the passage that we're going to look at today is that Jesus tells us these things in His own words in the text that we're going to look at this morning. In fact, nowhere else in the Gospels does Jesus defend His Sonship in such a clear and orderly and systematic way. I mean, I was studying this passage this week and I go, you know, I don't know if I've ever dug into this text quite this deeply. I was amazed by it. I thought, this is a marvelous text. It's not only a defense of Jesus' sonship, it's a very good explanation of what we believe when we talk about Christian monotheism and the Trinity, that we believe in one God who exists in three persons, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we see that reflected here in the text that we're going to look at this morning. But why is that important? Is this just an article of doctrine that we kind of know and sits on a shelf? No, it's not that at all. It is very important because it shows how Jesus is uniquely qualified to be our Savior. So what does this text tell us? And what does 
Jesus declaring about himself in this passage? Well, he begins by telling us that the Father and the Son are one. The Father and the Son are equal in nature. Jesus is fully God, yet he is subordinate in his role as the Son. And we see that in verses 16 to 18. Now, how did this conversation come up, though? Why was Jesus answering these kind of questions? Well, the reason is because of what took place in the first part of this chapter. In John chapter 5, in the beginning, there's a story there about a man who was paralyzed for 38 years of his life. And he used to go to this pool in Jerusalem, pool by Bethesda, where there are five columns, and it was well known in that city. We actually, on the time when we went to Israel, had the opportunity to see that. And the base of those five columns are still there. And here this man would go hoping for God's hand to come upon him, hoping that somehow he was going to be able to get in that pool at a special time and he would be healed. Jesus came and saw him and had compassion on him. And he healed this man. And he instructed him to take his mat on which he had been lying and take it and walk. He could go home. And so this man who was healed picks up his mat and he begins to walk through that area uh, of the city of Jerusalem. But it was on the Sabbath that this happened. And the Jewish leaders who saw him said, that's not right. You're not supposed to be carrying your mat on the Sabbath. That's work as they defined it. Not only that, but Jesus healing this man would be work on the Sabbath as well. And so they were angry at Jesus because He was working on the Sabbath. And how does Jesus answer them? We see it in verse 17. He tells them in essence that the reason I am working on the Sabbath is because my Father is always at work on the Sabbath. He said, My Father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. You see, the Father doesn't suspend the rules of healing on the Sabbath, and the Father doesn't stop governing the universe on the Sabbath. If He did, the whole thing would collapse and we'd die. He is at work continually, sustaining the things that He has made, giving life, enabling us to be healed or restored or refreshed. The Father is always at work. And Jesus says, that's why I too am working. Because I do whatever the Father tells me. The Jews were shocked by Jesus' answer. You see, Jesus wasn't just breaking the Sabbath as they understood it. Jesus was now claiming equality with God, and that was blasphemy. And that's why John includes this note in verse 18, For this reason the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to kill Him, because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. Attention is introduced to the Gospels here that will lead to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. There's this tension because they do not understand or believe in Jesus and they think 
that this is utter blasphemy and he needs to be put to death. Can you blame them? On one level, no. I mean, the only people I have ever heard talk like that, like people saying today, you know, I'm Jesus Christ, or, you know, I'm, I'm uh, you know, uh, at God's right hand, or making claims like that, the only people I've ever heard like that are a little bit frightening. They're very deluded. They need to be treated, if you will, because of the claims that they are making. But here's Jesus, the most rational person you've ever met, stating very plainly and directly these kind of claims. That's why C.S. Lewis and others have made the point in reference to Jesus making these claims about Himself that either He is deluded, or He's a liar, or it's true. There really aren't any other options. Either he was crazy, or he was intentionally trying to deceive people, or he is the one that he claims to be, and he is Lord and God. Secondly, he tells us that the Father and the Son are identical in our purpose and activity. There is a perfect unity between the Father and the Son, and we see that in verse 19. I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. These two share in the work that is going on continually. And Jesus says, whatever my Father does, that's what I do. Whatever He wants me to do, that's what I do. There is a unity between the two. But think about what that means. Who but God could do what God does? Could a man do what God does? Not at all. I mean, that's what God challenged Job to do in the Old Testament. Remember when Job was kind of miffed at God about how he was being treated? Job's thinking, you know, I'm a pretty good guy. God, why did you allow all these things to happen? And he thinks that somehow God has it wrong. And God comes to him at the end of the book of Job in chapters 38 and 39, and he says, Job, let me ask you a few questions. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across the universe? On what were its footings set? Who laid its cornerstone? while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Job, can you shut up the oceans and say, This far can you come and no farther? Job, have you ever commanded the dawn and said to the morning, Now is the time to come? Can you command the storehouses of the wind, the lightning, the snow? Can you give orders to all of those things and say, Today you'll fall and not tomorrow? When he went through this list, two chapters long, how did Job respond at the end? He comes to the end and he puts his hand over his mouth and he shuts his mouth in humility. Who can do what God does? Only God can do what God does. And you begin to see why it was so powerful when Jesus commanded the wind 
and the rain to cease and he calmed the seas and the disciples saw that and they said what sort of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him he's no ordinary man he is Lord and God and to see Jesus is to see the Father Thirdly, he tells us that the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. And we see that in verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all He does. Yes, to your amazement, He will show Him even greater things than these. The Father shows His love to the Son in disclosure. He tells the Son everything that He is going to do. And why is that significant here? It is because when Jesus became a man... Jesus voluntarily set aside the independent use of His own attributes. He would only do what the Father would ask Him to do. And so Jesus, as a man, chose to live in dependence upon the Father. And the Son shows His love in perfect obedience. We've seen earlier in John chapter 4 that Jesus said, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work. So the Father loves the Son and shows Him everything. And the Son loves the Father and obeys Him perfectly. And what you have here is a model for all human relationships. You can think about it in terms of marriage. It explains how in a marriage there can be equality between a husband and a wife before God and yet there can be headship and submission. There's equality in the Trinity. All three possess the same attributes. They are all equally God. And yet there is a relationship where the Son is obedient to the Father and acts in this role as a son. It's also a model for our parenting relationships then between a father and a son where there is obedience and respect. And all of this is done in this context of love. I mean, it it doesn't work without that kind of perfect love. In a marriage, if a husband tries to exercise his headship in a way that is unloving, that is cruel and abusive, that is not right. And that doesn't honor God. And the same thing in a parenting relationship. If, If a father tried to exercise his authority in a way that was harsh and cruel... That is an honor God. And if a son or a daughter does not respect their parents and love them in return, that is an honor God either. You see here, a model for the earthly relationships that we have is found in the Trinity where there is this unity of purpose, there is this love that is gracious and kind and it flows both directions. And so the issue of father and a son, each carrying out their distinctive roles, is not a problem at all. And Jesus says, to your amazement, the Father will show him even greater things than these. What are the greater things that the Son will do? Well, we see it in verses 21 and 22. For example, in 21, we see that the Son has the power to give life, just like the Father. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. The Jews believed that God alone was the source of life, and they are correct. God alone can give life. But the Son, who is God, 
can also give life. Even today, men attempt to extend life through medical means or through exercise or diet or things that we try to do to live as healthy as long as we can. We try to extend life. We even have people trying to clone life today, if you will, among the animals. But we can't create life. Only God can do that. And Jesus says, just as the Father can raise the dead, so I can raise the dead. Wow. The proof of that's going to be seen in chapter 11 when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. But even more important than Jesus' ability to give physical life is Jesus' power to give eternal life. That all who will believe in Him will cross over from death to life. Jesus says in verse 24, I tell you the truth, whoever hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and will not be condemned because He has crossed over from death to life. And fifthly, we see here that the Father has given all judgment to the Son in verses 22 through 30. Verse 22, He says, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Again, the Jews believed that God is the final judge. They understood that there was a day when we would stand before God and He would judge our lives and the quality of the work that we had done. But again, they were shocked by Jesus' words that He will be the one before whom we stand. Who but God can judge the hearts of men? No one. But do you see what John has been saying here in this Gospel? At different points along the way, Jesus did not entrust Himself to man because He knew the heart of man. Jesus knew the woman at the well. He knew everything about her life. All of her relationships, all of her past. He knows her heart and what she needs. He knows your heart and mine. Why has the Father given all judgment to the Son? Verse 23 says, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. In Philippians 2, 9-11, Paul tells us that one day every knee is going to bow before Him. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All men will stand before Him. You and I one day will stand before Jesus as that judge. And He is uniquely qualified to judge as the Son of Man. Fully God, fully man. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that one day we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due for him, for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. The books will be open. Our life will be an open book. And Jesus will look at those things that we have done and each one will be rewarded according to the things that we have done. For the believer, it is not a judgment as to heaven or hell. Because when we place our faith in Christ, as Jesus has said here, we already possess eternal life. But there will be rewards for the things that we have done. Or there will be loss for those things that we have not done. 
In Daniel 7, in the passage where this Son of Man title is first used, it tells us that that day is coming. Daniel saw the vision of all the kingdoms of the earth in progression. And then he saw the kingdom of God coming at the end. And he saw seated on the throne the Ancient of Days, and one like a Son of Man came before him. And to the Son of Man was given authority and glory and sovereign power, and all peoples, nations, and men of every language will worship Him. And He will reign forever and ever. That's the title, Son of Man, that Jesus took upon Himself. G. Campbell Morgan said He was the God-man. He was not God indwelling a man. Of such there have been many. For all of us who know Christ as our Savior and Lord, God says He comes to live in us. When we open our heart to Him, God dwells in us. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's a remarkable thing. So There have been many in whom God has dwelt as a man. Jesus wasn't like that. And Jesus was not a man deified. There have been none of those. Only those told in pagan myths and systems of thought. But there's only been one God and man combined in one person. Two natures. Fully God, fully man. A perpetual enigma and mystery. We can't fully explain it, can we? but we can bow before Him in worship. Michael Green writes that only Jesus fully understands God the Father. Great people have discovered and taught many true and noble things about God. But nobody's known Him with the intimacy of Jesus who could call Him Abba, Daddy. When Mahatma Gandhi was dying, one of his relatives came to him and he asked him the question, He said, Mahatma, you have been looking for God all your life. Have you found Him? And Mahatma Gandhi shook his head and he said, No, I am still looking. How sad was his answer. Humbling, still seeking, still searching. He hadn't found Him. What a stark contrast His words are with Jesus' claim that no one knows the Father except the Son and to whoever the Son chooses to reveal Him. Jesus has come so that we might know what the Father is like. So that we might bow our hearts in worship before Him. And so that we might listen and learn from Him. He has come to give each one of us that gift of eternal life. And I would pray that as we go through this study and we read these kind of things that are said about Jesus, that it will just enrich our celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ this Christmas. And that as we gather around and we sing these songs that are so familiar to us that the words would strike us in a very fresh way, Jesus is Lord. He is God in human flesh. He is worthy of our praise and our greatest devotion.
Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the power of Your Scripture, for the words that we have read today that speak of Jesus and who He is and what He has done. I thank You that we have the opportunity to come like this to worship You. And Lord, each of us probably knows people in our life that You've placed there who do not have that kind of personal relationship with You. And Father, I pray that we can be a witness for You at this season of the year. When we can invite others to come, to hear about You, to know You, that they might too worship Jesus and celebrate His birth. We pray it in His name. Amen.